How did you go in the Christmas present stakes this year? Did you make a list? Did you get the things that you were hoping for? But let me ask you a more personal question. Are you enjoying your gifts? Do they measure up to your expectation? Uh, This time of year is often full of disappointment when presents you long for start to lose their appeal. The new phone, the new clothes, the new toy, perhaps they break or don't do what they promised to do. Or perhaps the problem's with you, your unrealistic expectations. Maybe the presents work just the way they're supposed to, but you quickly get bored with them and they don't satisfy the way you hoped. And so you start looking through the post-Christmas sale catalogues to find the next thing that you hope will make you happy. But it's not just gifts. People have that same expectation and disappointment in lots of areas of life. Relationships and work and pleasure, hobbies and sports, even religion, searching, chasing something that will satisfy them, will give them pleasure that lasts, make them feel good or complete, that will make life worth living. We see how it works in the book of Ecclesiastes. Jeremy showed us the last couple of weeks. Solomon was searching for the purpose of life and he asked the question, what's to be gained? What do we get from everything we do? And he tried everything. He tried work and pleasure and parties. He pushed the limits more than anybody. And here's what he discovered. After all that chasing to gain things, he realised it was meaningless. It was empty, futile, nothing was gained. Nothing satisfied, nothing lasted. Some of you have met our dog Charlie. And uh, one of the cute things he does is he loves to chase water from the hose when you're spraying the hose around. Uh, It's hilarious to watch. He gets so excited and he runs around and the water's sprayed in all directions and there's lots of noise and motion and energy, but there's no gain. He achieves nothing. He bites at the water and he comes up with nothing except wet. And that's a picture of what human life is like. Lots of noise, lots of activity, but in the end, no gain, nothing lasts. It's lost, or it's broken, or it's stolen, or else we die and someone else gets it. And nothing satisfies us. Everything disappoints. And we're hungry for something else, something beyond this life. We need a better treasure. And yet we all do it. We all, like Charlie, chase around and snap at water from a hose. We seek to gain things. Our purpose in life is to build stuff and significance. The businessman seeks wealth and promotion. The student seeks to gain knowledge, qualifications, answers, tools for life. The lonely person seeks acceptance and intimacy. The party-goer seeks pleasure. The sportsman seeks the ego boost of coming first. 
The drug user seeks escape. The lazy person seeks comfort. The hard worker seeks approval and significance. The control freak seeks the comforting illusion of control. The fitness freak seeks physical health and the attention and envy of others. The do-gooder seeks to make a difference and leave a legacy. The religious person seeks acceptance from God and entrance into eternity. We all do it. And we see that same thing in Philippians 3 this morning because it's the way the Apostle Paul used to live as well. His old life in Judaism. He chased after all sorts of things for his gain because he thought he'd profit from them. That life would be better, that the foundation for his confidence before God would be more solid. Do you see the list there in verse 5? The list of personal achievements he thought would make him right with God. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law of Moses said, of the tribe of Israel, God's chosen people, tribe of Benjamin, one of only two tribes who were faithful, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means he still read Hebrew and spoke Aramaic, unlike many of the other Jews who, who only understood Greek. He was a Pharisee. He kept the strictest set of rules. He was a zealous persecutor of heretics. And his personal moral performance was faultless. He covered every base, he ticked every box, the top of every list. And as his list of achievements grew in life, so did his confidence. He was confident that if anyone was going to be okay at the judgement, it would be him. But that was before. All of that changed when he discovered a better treasure. A treasure that worked, that lasted, that satisfied, when he found Jesus. Or, to be more accurate, when Jesus found him. Do you see what happened there in verse 7? But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish. When he met Jesus, he realised that all that treasure he'd been building wasn't getting him further into credit, but actually further into debt. Why? Why was all of that good stuff rubbish? Why was Jesus such a treasure by comparison? Well, the answer's in the very next verse, in verse 9. It's all rubbish. Why do I think that is the case? That I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul thought his life was building his own righteousness, but once he met Jesus, God joined him to Jesus by faith and then Jesus' righteousness became Paul's righteousness. 
The, the problem with Paul's list, uh, list was that it was do-it-yourself righteousness. And when it comes to it, do-it-yourself is just rubbish. What you need instead of do-it-yourself is a master builder. In this case, you need Jesus, whose righteousness was perfect. Every thought, every word, every action, pure. You might have noticed that I translated verse 9 a little differently. I think the best way to translate that, the middle of verse 9 uh, as through, uh, is through the faithfulness of Christ. Uh, what you've got in the, the NIV is through faith in Christ and you could translate it either way. Uh, one is about what Jesus has done and one is about what we do, we trust Jesus. And I think here in verse 9 it's looking at what Jesus does. Uh, Paul has his faulty righteousness that comes from the law, it doesn't work, but instead we've got Jesus' faithful righteousness that comes from God and then that becomes ours when we have faith, when we trust what Jesus has done. Paul's do-it-yourself, Jesus' work. It's like a home renovation. You can either do it yourself or you can call in the experts. In some ways there's something attractive about do it yourself. There's the value for money. You get more renovation for your dollar. Then there's the pride, the sense of achievement. Look what I built. That is until things start to go wrong. The wood on that railing starts to bend and twist or the shower starts to leak, or the squeak in the floorboards means that the brick piers that you laid are about to fall over. If you don't know what you're doing, there's the constant worry of whether you've built it well enough. And it's like that with do-it-yourself righteousness in life. There's always mistakes and failures and good things that you don't do. Your best is never good enough. Even on your best days, there's the constant worry of whether you've done enough. The lack of assurance, the constant threat of a performance review from God, a building inspection. Have your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds? That's the way it works in Islam, for example. The Quran says, our deeds will be measured and weighed and whoever, whosoever has more good deeds will enter the gardens of paradise and whose evil deeds weigh more than the good ones will enter into the hellfire. That's the way it worked in the Judaism of Paul's time. And that's why he gets so angry with the false teachers in verse 2. He calls them dogs. He calls them mutilators of the flesh because they were teaching that Jesus wasn't enough. To be really confident, you needed to build on top of what Jesus did. You had to add circumcision or keeping the Sabbath or or obeying food laws. And that's not trusting Jesus at all. That's a do-it-yourself righteousness, which never works. Most other religions, all other religions, have a similar idea about what you have to do to be right with God, but not Christianity. 
The difference between religion and true Christianity is the difference between do and done. Those of you learning English, it's the difference between the present tense, do, and the past tense, done. Already finished. Every other religion is about what you have to do. Trusting those things to make you right with God. Hoping that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. People who want to get their baby christened in church or to be married in a church or or who do good works or give money to charity or attend church or religious pilgrimages or who sacrifice so many times a week or who give confession. That's religion. But Christianity is about done. What Christ has already done. It's not some righteousness slapped together by a weekend handyman, do it yourself, it's been assembled with perfect workmanship by the master builder himself, by his faithfulness. It's a righteousness that's built rock solid. You can jump up and down on it all you like. The foundations aren't moving anywhere. It's sure and solid and reliable. Done, not do. What a difference that makes to how you live. You can live with confidence and joy and assurance. It's no wonder that Paul calls the old way of life that he used to live rubbish. He calls it loss. Verse 1 he says to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord. That's what it looks like in your life. Uh, rejoice in Jesus. Don't rejoice because you've done your good deed for the day. Don't rejoice because you're better than the other person. Don't rejoice because you're more qualified or more talented. Rejoice because you're in Jesus. That you have his righteousness before God. Rejoice that your relationship with God is restored. Rejoice that your eternity is certain that you can rest secure because the work has been done. Rejoice that God's spirit is at work in you, that he's working good things in your life. That's joy. That perspective changes everything about life. It makes the things that you used to think important seem like rubbish. And instead... You want to gain other things. Look at the way it works for Paul. What does he aim for now that he's in Jesus, that he's right? There in verse 10, he's gained Christ. He wants to be found in Christ, verse 10. And so, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, so he's in Christ, he's a Christian, but that means he wants to know more of Jesus. He wants to know more about him, but he also wants to know him better, to know him more personally. And the knowledge about Jesus, notice it has two sides to it. He wants to know the power of his resurrection but also the fellowship of sharing in sufferings. 
You see, the genuine, the true Christian life has both of those. So on the one hand, it's a mistake when people promise that the the Christian life will be pain-free and trouble-free, victory. The truth is, there's suffering and brokenness in the Christian life. We won't experience perfection and paradise until eternity, when Jesus returns. On the other hand, it's also a mistake to say that the Christian life is miserable and powerless and defeat. That's a mistake too. Both of the things are true. When you're in Christ, we have his resurrection power available to us. But it's not a power to come first and to destroy enemies and to achieve uh, riches and and a, a wonderful kingdom for yourself. The power of Jesus' resurrection is the power to put yourself last to be a servant, to endure patiently. It's the power to rejoice despite pain and disappointment and confusion sometimes and failure. That's the way it worked for Jesus. Paul already already described back in chapter 2 how Jesus' life looked. Jesus began with the status and the nature of God but he gave it up and became nothing obediently humbled himself to death, all by the power of God's spirit. That was the one side. And because of his obedience, God exalted him and raised him and restored him to his rightful place at God's right hand. That's the other side. Jesus is the lamb who was slain, but he's also the lion of Judah. And both of those things is the Jesus Paul wants to know. He wants to know the lion and the Lamb. That's the life he wants to experience, both obedient, faithful suffering and victorious, long-suffering, overcoming power. That's the Christian life. It's really the logical outworking of the Christian being in Christ. You see, if we're joined to Jesus by faith and we have his right standing before God, then it follows that we will live out the life of Jesus, the suffering and the victory. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. When you're connected to Jesus, you'll experience his life. You'll experience his sufferings as well as his victory. Jesus himself promised the same thing. John 15:20. he said, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. And when we do experience the life of Jesus, when we do experience the persecution and suffering and, and we keep trusting God, then God's purposes are actually served in our lives. In our lives, we grow more like Jesus. Do you see how it works for Paul? At the end of verse ten, he said, "I want to experience all of this, becoming like Jesus in His death." That word for becoming like Jesus, it's got the idea of being moulded into the same shape 
as Jesus. God's method for making Christ-like disciples isn't to make our life easy, to give us everything we want. That doesn't make us like Jesus. It, it makes us spoiled, soft brats. Instead, God's method is to train and discipline, to knock out from under us every crutch and support and foundation that we stand on and to teach us by the power of his spirit patience and humility and prayerfulness. That's God's plan and his purpose. And then in the end, once we've walked through life like that to raise us from the dead, there in verse 11, God raised Jesus and enthroned him and because we're in Jesus, we're guaranteed to be raised as well. At the end of the age, when everything's completed, raised to rule with Christ because we're in him. That's the shape of Jesus. That's what it means to be conformed to his likeness. The funny thing is, as you look at the life of a Christian, it might look from the outside pretty similar to the good works that Paul the Jew was building, the do-it-yourself righteousness. The two lives might look pretty similar. It might look like the life of the the good, moral, law-abiding, non-Christian Aussie today. But it's completely different. One is work that you do to make you acceptable to God, to justify yourself, or you do it just because it's what you think's right. It's do-it-yourself. The other is work that you do because you're already acceptable to God. It comes from a different motivation. It has a different power. It has a different goal. It's a better life. It's a better treasure. It's a true life. It comes because the Christian is in Christ rather than coming from within yourself. It's a life that's focused on glorifying Jesus rather than glorifying yourself. It's a power to endure suffering and to come last rather than a human-centred power that wants to come first. It comes from God's spirit at work in you rather than your works. It's about done, not do. It's a life of joy rather than the worry of do-it-yourself performance. And so Paul would say to you this morning, get rid of the rubbish life which is do-it-yourself, building your own claims of standing before God and instead rejoice in the work of the master builder of Jesus. Be found in him. Know him. Know the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection and that will be a treasure, a present that will satisfy you forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, these are big ideas. Uh, it's a goal, it's a, it's a desire if we're honest with ourselves, perhaps we're not even sure we want because this life has so many attractive things. Uh, help us, Lord God, to see those things for what they are, that they're rubbish and worthless and that they're nothing compared to knowing Jesus 
and being found in him and having a perfect righteousness before you. Help us to want to know Jesus better, to know his sufferings as well as the power of his resurrection. Lord God, be at work in us, moulding us into the shape of Jesus for your glory. Amen.